This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Telerik, the makers of Kendo UI. Kendo UI integrates seamlessly with both AngularJS 1.x and 2.0. It provides everything you need to integrate with AngularJS out of the box, bindings, component configuration directives, template directives, form validation event handlers, and much more. And yet, Kendo UI tooling does not depend on AngularJS, so if you want to use it with Angular or not, that's totally up to you. You can check it out at kendoui.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 99 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Ward Bell. Hello, everyone. Lucas Rubelke. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick shout-out about Angular Remote Conf coming up in September. We've got two special guests this week. We've got David East. Hello, everyone. And Jeff Cross. Hello. We've had you on the show before, but do you want to reintroduce yourselves? Yeah, my name is David East. I'm a developer advocate at Google, where I work full-time on the Firebase team, and I also do a 20% project. So, like, you know, one day a week I work with the Angular team right now on the uh, Material project. Oh, so you're a 20% yeah. Angular team member? Yes. twenty One day of the week, Jeremy Elborn can tell me to do anything, get his coffee, fix a component or whatever, write documentation, and I'll just, I'll just do it. Just listen to he's my benevolent overlord. Gotcha. How about you, Jeff? Uh, I'm Jeff Cross. I'm on the Angular team. I'm a tech lead of the mobile team on the Angular team. We're focusing on making mobile development with Angular 2 really nice. And I work with David East every once in a while as well on the Angular Fire 2 library for Angular 2 in Firebase. Now, if you kind of get what Firebase is... I can kind of see how Angular, Mobile, Firebase, that can all kind of come together for something interesting. But can you tell us specifically how these two projects gel? You know, we, I've been working with the Firebase team since before they were at Google, uh, even on the Angular Fire 1 version for Angular 1. We were collaborating early on, and so it's just always been personally interesting to me, and others on the team have always been fans of Firebase. And so their big focus for the past, I don't know, maybe since Firebase started, has been mobile applications, making it easy to build these nice features into mobile applications, like the real-time database, making authentication easy, and making everything fast and performant and light wait so it works well on mobile and so when we forked off this mobile team earlier this year we knew that firebase was one thing we wanted to focus on as well as helping other people in the community build integrations and so i just kind of naturally started working with david to build this out even though it's not strictly a mobile tool before we get too far can david talk a bit about what 
uh, the key characteristics of Firebase are and how it distinguishes itself from other kinds of databases that people might be familiar with. Yeah, well, so it all started out as just a uh, real-time database, and then we realized that people would actually want to log their users in, so we created a authentication service that handled a lot of OAuth-type things just out of the box, so you could authenticate with Twitter, Facebook, GitHub, Google, email password, anonymous authentication, and all that just sort of worked, you know, without having to run your own server. And then people were building lots of cool apps and stuff on that. And so we then created a hosting service. So you could or a static hosting provider where you could just through one line of the command line, just do Firebase deploy. And then boom, you have all of your, your web apps just right out there for everyone to use. And then when we came into, uh, we were acquired by Google and they invested tons of resources. The team's grown like three or four times the size since we've been acquired. And at I.O., we had our big, I don't know really exactly what to call it, it's not really like a relaunch, but we had a big like revamp where we added, you know, almost over a dozen new features uh, where now we redid our authentication. We added a bunch of features like remote config, which is primarily for Android and iOS apps. We have Google Cloud Messaging, which is Google's way of sending push notifications uh, to Android devices and iOS devices, got renamed to Firebase Cloud Messaging. Uh, and so that's now part of our services. And so we're just a ton of new stuff that we have. And so rather than just being a real-time database anymore, which is just a part of it, we're an entire platform for building you know, applications like our logo is app success or our motto is app success made simple because we want to take all of that difficult work of not just running backend infrastructure, but like, how do I, you know, engage my users? How do I have success? Like we also integrate heavily with AdMob. So if you want to actually make money and stuff like that, uh, we have this whole like end to end cycle from not just building your app, but engaging your users and growing and making money as you go along. So I guess I shouldn't mention that we had the folks from Azure App Services on last week. You, you can mention there. <laughs> you know, Microsoft's got great people. I'm curious. So it sounds like Firebase is becoming more of a, a complete mobile platform or mobile support platform as opposed to just that, like you said, just the real-time database. So what I'm wondering is, as you split the focus, because it felt like Firebase really was sort of focused before on these web applications that could use Firebase as a backend. With you splitting your focus to mobile and to the backend as a service, I'm really saying this poorly. But I guess I guess what I'm driving at is that, you know, should we be worried that you're going to be more focused on mobile than you are on the web traffic? And, you know, what what are you adding in there for the rest of us? Yeah, well, uh, so there's a ton of stuff I didn't mention. Uh, so I just mentioned sort of what came off the top of my head. But we also um, released a storage client. So essentially doing uh, binary file storage. You know, most people just consider that a way to upload images. But it's truly any type of binary file can go onto it. And so it's uh, serverless storage. And it has a similar authentication in uh, like file system our structure that our uh, real-time database has. And so that is also available on web. Firebase Cloud Messaging also has a web client that works well in Chrome. I mean, Firebase Hosting is one of our key features too. And so 
I want to say that while we did release a lot of features that are primarily for the mobile environment, like we have a crash reporting, which primarily just really works well on mobile, that doesn't mean that we're like leaving behind our roots in web. Like I still work heavily on the Angular team. And like you said, Jeff and I are working on upgrading Angular Fire 2. We had uh, one of our developers on Firebase Hosting worked with the Polymer team on creating a brand new Polymer Fire library. And there's just a lot of stuff in the pipeline that we have, specifically around progressive web apps, too, that we're really looking into and pushing forward. So I, I wanted to say, like, so we do have a lot of new mobile features, but I really wouldn't say, like, oh, it seems like it's being left behind. It's just, just another add-on to the platform. So, I mean, that's it's wildly expanded since since I last paid attention to it as the database. Tell us a bit about the intersection with Angular 2 and what's going on there. Yeah, so we had an original binding for Angular 1 where we were essentially we would synchronize the real-time events. So for those who don't know about the real-time database, essentially, uh, I think I left out the question Ward had originally asked me about how is it different than other databases. Well, with most databases, you sort of have almost an HTTP-like model. So you do a, you make a request out to a database, usually in the form of a query, like a SQL query, and then you get a response from it and from that you have your set of data and you you know you do whatever with it and with the real time database it's inverted you essentially say to your database like whenever something changes here tell me about it and so rather than asking for your data you get your data delivered to you in real time so you write with you know for in the case of a web developer you'd write in our javascript library i'm very interested in when data changes in this location of my database and when it does Tell me what changed. And so you get this callback function that gets fired off every single time, and that is the synchronized state of your data. And so you can render that to the view, you can do whatever, and this all, every update is notified to you, you know, within milliseconds. So it's all, you know, quick and in real time. And so for Angular Fire 1, we took these real-time observers, and we couldn't just use them out of the box with Angular 1 because of the digest loop. So we uh, integrated that with the digest loop, tried to do it as efficiently as possible, so we were just creating thousands of watchers and just throttling everything. And, uh, and so we worked on that library a lot. It's one of our uh, one of the hardest libraries we've worked on as far as like uh, integrating with another framework or library goes. And that's gone really well for us. And so we've learned a lot from that. And so now with Angular 2, we're taking some of these similar concepts. But rather than uh, integrating with Digest, because we don't need to do that anymore, we're integrating with the observable, you know, with RxJS and Angular. And so these real-time events work really well when you uh, mix them in with observables. I'm a little bit curious. You, you talked about Angular Fire 2 and how it works now with the new way that Angular does things. One thing that I am a little bit curious about is if I am familiar with Angular Fire, with Angular 1, how different is it going to be for me to integrate or upgrade my app so that I'm using Angular Fire 2 with Angular 2? So I think that as far as, you know, like learning Angular Fire 2 versus Angular Fire 1, there's a lot of similar type. So we sort of follow this like binding pattern where we uh, essentially like in Angular Fire 1, you would say like scope.items is a Firebase array that points at the items location in my database. And then that would then synchronize this array onto scope. 
And the way that works is, is that it looks like a synchronous call, even though it's not a synchronous call, data is downloaded asynchronously, but this scope.items starts out as an empty array. And so no data has gone over the network yet, it just sits there. Now, as the data comes back, we're going to start populating this array. And every time this happens, we're going to fire off the digest loop so that stays in sync with your template and everything and keeps everything kind of magical. But there's like this famous little gif. I think Matt Palazaki showed it at um, NGConf where there's the little kid is with the spray hose and he keeps trying to grab the water and the spray hose. And so every time he's squeezing it, he just can't get it because he's like letting go every time he grabs. And that's kind of what this process is like, because while everything updates in real time and it's awesome, you can never catch this array. Like you can't operate on it. You can't say scope.items.map or anything like that, because that data is going to be updated over time and later. So you would have to, you know, call a promise on it. And so you'd have to say, hey, when this data has loaded, now I'd like to operate on it. But sort of the problem with that is, is that with a promise, it only resolves one time. So you're not going to continue to get those real-time updates. And so we have a couple of helper functions that allow you to, uh, we call them factory methods, that allow you to extend the behavior to fix this problem. But with Angular Fire 2, this is where observables come in really, really well, because observables are collections over time. They're just arrays that live out, you know, throughout you know, minutes, days, whatever. It's just a raise in time. And that is what your data in Firebase is. Like you're storing an array in your real-time database. And then when you're synchronizing that back, you're essentially getting that back as an array onto the client. And that array is going to update. It's going to get bigger. It's going to get smaller. And observables are a really, really nice way of modeling that because it follows that same idea that it's just a collection that can live out over time. And I can map on it. I can reduce it. I can do all the crazy little, you know, observable operators, and it just fits in perfectly for what the uh, real-time observers do and fire in the real-time database. What kinds of data are is this best? Uh, by the way, I'm totally on board with this. If there was ever a uh, poster child for observables, this is it. What kinds of data are most suited to be um, created and consumed in this fashion? Actually, to speak on your point of poster child. When we were acquired, uh, Eric Meyer, you know, like one of the mm -hmm. godfathers, yeah, yeah. he sent out a tweet that was like, my favorite subject, uh, Firebase, is going on an incredible journey with Google or something like that. And he used like, you know, an observable pun by saying my favorite subject. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he he used this a lot in his demos. But yeah, so like what kind of data works well is that the uh, database itself is just really one big JSON object or one little JSON object, depending on what, how much you're storing. But it's just a JSON object. And so your how you access this data is through sort of like a restful path, you would think of it. So you could say slash items would point you at your list of items, whereas slash item slash one would get you to the first item. And so the further you nest in with the paths, the more specific to your data you get. And it's just the same key value pairing, but it's hierarchical. So you can have objects within objects within objects as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I see all kinds of data that fits this pattern. 
And then there's also a lot of traditional data that sits in a very different kind of store. Uh, how do you sort of uh, recommend people sort of interplay? I mean, you're not saying, hey, everybody suddenly move everything out of your Oracle database into my Firebase, or maybe you are, and that would be a curious statement. So how, how do you interplay with traditional forms of data and make an application? And this is a good question also for Jeff. How do, how do we bring these two different strategies together when people have data of these different types? I mean, what I think is, is like that what the real-time database does well is that when you have data that changes often, like, you know, quickly changing data or just really when you're structuring application data, like NoSQL, which, you know, the real-time database is a NoSQL database, NoSQL fits in really well there because you don't always need the constraints of like a schema right off the bat when you're developing. Like sometimes you can play fast and loose as you're figuring it out. And then over time, you can develop like a stronger schema and it makes it easier to migrate it that you didn't have to specify these specific strict requirements off the bat when you don't even know exactly what you need. And then it's pretty easy to build all your application data. You model your views after your data structures after your views. And then when you keep that all in sync, it just works out really well. And that doesn't mean you have to migrate completely away from like an Oracle database or something like that. I mean, you know, transactional databases, relational databases and stuff, they still have like a really great strong set of use cases. But for a lot of your application stuff, when you're just synchronizing data to a client, this like NoSQL type, this, you know, JSON data works out really, really well. And areas where you're you're probably wondering where it doesn't work out so well is anything that's binary data. It doesn't, you know, this is all, this is JSON, so it's string, it's string-based data. So unless you want to base 64 encode everything, which, you know, is probably not super fast to do, you know, you don't want to store that in there. And so we also, uh, at I.O., we released a brand new library called Firebase Storage, which is essentially built on top of Google Cloud Storage, and it's serverless binary storage. It's like petabyte scale, where you can, you know, I guess the project manager on the team always tells me to say, like, you could build Snapchat on this. Like he says, like, that's how scalable this thing is. And like, they're really big into how scalable it is. And uh, you can store tons and tons of data and you do it in the exact same structure that you do with the real time database. So if I say slash user slash one in the real time database, that'll pull me back the first user. But for Firebase storage, if I go slash user slash one dot PNG, that could pull me back their profile picture. And so just by following the convention of the same paths, it really handles everything well. Yeah, I would uh, agree, too, that application data is, for me, that's where I've seen Firebase really shine. And the data that tends to not be updated often or lives in a warehouse somewhere probably either gets copied to that database or gets um, dealt with differently outside the database. It really depends on the requirements of how your data works, how you would integrate it with Firebase. But yeah, probably. I, I don't know if, if Firebase is the best for a, a large user database that doesn't get updated very often, but David could speak more to that. Well, I don't think of it as an easier either or a proposition. I think that there are different stores for different purposes. And it's a. I think we're past the point where it all has to be one or the other. And I think we have these polyglot database ideas. Is, don't, don't you think, David? No, that's that's absolutely the case. Like, if you need like really strong slicing and dicing of data, that's where relational databases and like you know your SQL servers and your you know Oracle databases of the world give you this like crazy powerful querying. And the real time database isn't for like this heavy 
like isn't it's not going to spit out some you know like with SQL you can spin out like crazy XML like files and do or pull it, query XML files do all this crazy stuff whereas like you know this is really for synchronizing representing your data uh, the state of your data in this database and then getting its changes as it happens and that's where like Jeff's saying this is where that this really shines and uh, and it doesn't have to be changing like you know oh every couple of seconds like a lot of people say like oh I don't need the real time database because my data isn't real time and I tend to think that if uh, your data doesn't have to update all the time to think about things in this way because you would rather get notifications that your data has updated than have to pull a server just to see if anything has changed. Like you don't always want to make some request just to be like, hey, did anything change? I don't know. Uh, nothing did. All right, that's fine. Where it's better to have the server have because the real-time database actually has a WebSocket persisted from the you know real-time database servers to your client, and it knows efficiently like when something needs to be updated, which is you know a much more sane model for you as a developer. Yeah, absolutely. Now you guys have. You know, the mobile world is a world in which one loses connectivity, says the guy who just sitting at home lost his entire Internet connection. <laughs> uh, um, but I'll bet with this whole real time idea that you're that you got good stuff for dealing with intermittent connectivity issues. Yes. So, yeah, if you are in a tunnel, like let's say you're using your app on your phone and then you go through a tunnel, uh, you'll likely cut connection and the real-time database library will continue actually to work offline as it would online for intermittent connections. So it uh, does a really good job of that. It will actually fire events locally. So like if you save something, uh, it won't just like hang. It will actually fire that event locally. And then when you regain connection, it'll persist that write to the server and uh, go. Th and then any updates that also happened while you're offline get merged down to your client. So a lot of times people don't even know when they're offline, if they're offline for maybe 10, 15 seconds, because it just continues to work as it usually would. Hopefully you're not the one driving when you go through that tunnel. <laughs> and using your app at the same time, I mean. I mean, you got to be dedicated to QA, QA testing, you know. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know? It's hands-free, and besides, they're tying this right into the driverless car thing so that Firebase is driving the car, and we don't even know where we're going anymore, which brings me naturally to... <laughs> <laughs> brings me naturally to Jeff. I know about H the HTTP component in Angular 2, which is a request response um, style approach. This suggests uh, we need something in Angular 2 for WebSockets, or that, I mean, and Firebase, obviously, I'm, I'm not so obviously, I assume you're using WebSockets, is that right, David? Correct. So what have we got going there? What componentry is going is available or is going to be available to somebody who wants to talk to WebSockets? Good question. So the nice thing that we haven't talked about already is zones in Angular 2 make it so we actually don't need a Firebase library for Angular 2. Like we don't have digest and that to worry about anymore. So the actual only reason for the Firebase library is so we could provide these nice abstractions of synchronized lists with observables and fit into these patterns. But to the question of WebSockets, we actually thought about it. I think we have a design issue opened on the Angular repo somewhere from probably six months or so ago. And we looked at it and we, you know, we don't want to add anything to Angular core or to even our maintained projects unless there's a clear need for it. And WebSockets was one of those things where we know some people are using plain WebSockets and they've, they've implemented their own protocols with it, you know, how to 
batch messages or how to have their own kind of abstractions of rooms or channels or whatever. And then a lot of people are using Socket.io to manage it and, and other libraries like this. And Socket.io even has a, a library underneath it, like a backend library. I forget what it's called. And so we looked at it and we were trying to decide... Is there any value we can provide without being too opinionated on, or, or is there, or is there a right balance we can we can strike with WebSockets? And at that time, it wasn't clear that there was a need for anything like that because you could just, if you are using Socket.io, then you could just use that and use the patterns it gives you. And same with WebSockets, you probably have invented your own protocol. We didn't want to invent a protocol on top of it without enough uh, use cases to design for. And so we, we figured the community would probably develop libraries that become necessary. And if it became clear there was something necessary in the core, then we would tackle that. But uh, right now, it doesn't seem like it's necessary. Unless you would like one word, then I will. I will. No, for you. no, 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 no. There, you're absolutely right. There's no kind of standardization uh, in the way that there is has traditionally grown up around HTTP. So I, I get it, and I think that's a that's a good answer. Though so I'm sure Rob Wormald has experimented with it because he's the one who goes and builds observable libraries for everything. So, so if you look at the NGRX project, there's probably already a repo there for it. One of the things that I get asked a lot about is what do we do for security in, in Angular 2? And everybody has their own definition of what that means. But certainly it includes the authentication processes that are part of Firebase. Is there a plan afoot to sort of say, why don't you just use Firebase for authentication and then continue on with your HTTP with other things that you got going? Uh, is that one of the blends that's being considered? or What's it going? What's the story? Uh, I would say that the strategy in general is similar to Angular 1. Like with HTTP, we're pr providing some basic things like the XRS, uh, XSRF token that you can save and gets added to requests. And you know, providing some of these low-level things, we haven't gone much higher level than that. But I think what I've realized from Google projects and from outside projects is most people are using some other tool that manages authentication or some some backend that has a library that does it for you. And so I haven't heard a lot of need of any higher level abstractions to manage authentication. So I think a reasonable recommendation is if you're using Firebase auth, yes, be use that library. And, you know, we might have, like we have some abstraction for it in Angular Fire 2, but it, it doesn't do much other than expose an observable API for it. And then uh, if you're using some other backend, or some other service, then it probably provides a library and, and you should be safe just using that and it should just work. So what sorts of projects do you foresee people using Angular and... Firebase to build. Oh man, where to begin? Like, so the really cool thing is, is that a lot of times people think, oh, real time data. So you're going to build a chat app or a collaborative to do list app, and those are all things that you can do. But like, you can take it really far. Like uh, a lot of times people don't like if, when you start thinking out the box a little bit, you tend to see sort of the amazing things you can do. Like the most innovative project I've ever seen for uh, using the real-time database was at, I think it was the Product Hunt Hackathon. And this guy made this app where it's a web app actually called Product Hunt. And it was like Duck Hunt, but with Product Hunt products. So it used the Product Hunt API. And then you could shoot these products with your phone, except it was a web app. So like how... <laughs> So the question was how, and you would hold up your phone to the screen and it would be like an actual, you would see like the cursor move when your phone moved, but there was no app on the phone. And so you're like, oh, has he got like some web 
Bluetooth, like what's going on? And it wasn't that. And what he actually did was, is he loaded up the web app, actually had a web app on his phone. And what he was able to do is, is he held up the, he would calibrate with your mobile device and he would use like the gyroscope positioning to know then whenever the phone moved, where to move the cursor to. And he used the real-time database to sync that cursor position across multiple devices. So the phone's gyroscope position was able to speak to the desktop and the desktop would just render the cursor in a different position. And then when he would tap the trigger button, it would then, if the cursor was in the position, it would fire and, you know, get the little product. And there's stuff like that I've done to a much lesser extent and much lesser creative, but I created an entire interactive uh, slide deck that used, uh, we have a library called FirePad that's essentially open source Google Docs. Uh, so like all of the real-time collaboration that Google Docs give you, we have a total open source library that handles that. And it also plugs into um, like Code Mirror and Ace Editor. And I use that functionality to be able to live code to people like remotely. And then I could hit a couple hotkeys and then I would just mess with the DOM. And so I would actually turn it to go full screen or I would be able to uh, render the results into an iframe next to it. And this would refresh on everyone's screen on the page. And so I could was controlling what was happening. And people are like, what is this? Like, are you the NSA? Are you controlling my computer? And it's not that I was doing anything like that. I was just manipulating manipulating the DOM, but every time I would send a command, it would just synchronize in the real-time database. So it would essentially just do a flag or something like that. And so the really the possibilities are endless uh, when you know that you have like the synchronization control in real time on like all the all these connected devices. Messing with people. I love it. Yeah, I know that's true. It's, a, it's really good for that. Yeah, I think of more quotidian type applications myself. You know, the people I'm doing aren't shooting at products at the at the screen, but they are tracking the movement of different things, whether it's blood pressure moving or whether it's vehicles moving or people moving, uh, trying to coordinate things. Uh, those are all naturals for the kind of thing that you're doing. So I, I guess I'm used to, to thinking in those terms. And we've never really had an easy technology to do that in. We've So, so many of us have done it with polling all these years and um it's nice that you're making it so easy to think about it a different way yeah i know it's kind of that was sort of the magic like i've been using firebase uh for i guess three years now and uh you know like way way back in the day when i remember when i first used it i was actually i was a .NET developer and i was i was a consultant so we would go on site and we would uh every we'd spend the first two weeks we used to call it like sprint zero where we had essentially build you know the back the original back end for the app and we would work so fast on that because the client would never actually see see what you're building you're like do you want to look at my pojos or my pocos do you want to look at like you know my services like they don't really care they want to see something visual and tangible and so i started building a back-end scaffolder with uh, t4 templates and powershell and uh, so essentially it would look at your database uh, schema and it would generate a backend for you and i thought that was just like genius and then um you know the implementation wasn't so genius but uh and then i discovered firebase and then i realized that i was like 
being like, man, I wish my horse was faster. And then they like built a car. And, uh, and then that, at that moment I was just hooked and then I just started building with it. And it took, even with my generator, it was still really difficult to get up and running. And with uh, Firebase, it was like, I just included a script file on my, you know, my web app and I'm already syncing data across, you know, clients and within milliseconds. So one other thing that I can see with some people is that they want to control their own data. So sending it off to a third party like uh, Firebase is either something they're not willing to do or given certain regulations, it might be a little riskier to do. Is there a way to have this in local storage or have your own version somewhere or have it sync somewhere? So if I could jump in here, I actually solved this problem using Firebase with HIPAA or basically uh, healthcare clients that basically have HIPAA compliance issues. And I actually wrote about it on my blog. It's about using Firebase just as an event bus. But what you can do is actually store your data on your HIPAA compliance server. And then when the data updates, you then update a smaller record on the Firebase side, which is generally just a unique ID and a timestamp. And once that is updated, then all of your connected clients then say, oh, like this thing just updated. Let me make a REST call back to my compliance server and get the full object. And so it's actually really lightweight and it's worked really well. So I've used it in multiple projects where, you know, basically the data had compliance constraints. And so you store all your data on your client, your compliance servers, and then you use Firebase just storing like an ID and a date stamp to, to broadcast, broadcast those events to all your connected clients and then have them then update to get the full object. That's slick. I mean, it was like totally genius, but, you know, the implementation, not so much as David would say. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually, yeah, and that's actually, he's using one of the things in my favorite part about the real-time database the authentication mechanism behind it is really just JSON web tokens. And so we give you a server secret key. And with this server secret, you can then mint JSON web tokens. And so you could log in with any backend. As long as you mint a token with this secret, that client can log in to the real-time database. And then from there, you give this uh, JSON web token has a payload that gives you information about like what this user is. We have a security model we call security rules that declaratively allow you to say, okay, what paths can this user access? And from there, you can actually write these rules that say like only let users within this role permission to modify this data or read this data and stuff like that. And when you mint your own token, you get a ton of power over that because you can actually customize that payload yourself. And so that's where like your own role-based security and all that type of stuff with custom tokens is like, it's a really great model. And, uh, and it's great because like literally any backend, as long as you mint your own token, can uh, authenticate with the real-time database. True story, bro. <laughs> So what's coming up in Firebase? What is coming up? Like what, what features are coming out in right, the future? 
So I, I am not the man with the plan with all the features, but what we are working on right now is, is that with all this uh, big, you know, hoorah we had at IO, we released a ton of new stuff and uh, we have not caught up completely with it within our uh, big ecosystem of libraries. And so we have libraries for every JavaScript framework you can really imagine out there and not all of them are on all the new stuff. And so we have just finished the Angular Fire uh, 1.x integration, or so the Angular 1.x integration, that one is now on the new SDK. The And we're, Jeff and I are actually currently working on upgrading Angular Fire 2 to work with the new SDK, and we are fervently working on getting that done. And then once we have those upgrades in, then we want to start making some of the new features work seamlessly with the libraries. So like specifically the first one would be the Firebase storage library. And we have some like pretty cool ideas of creating directives that pretty much automatically download your images from Firebase storage as if it was just a regular URL. Because what we do is we provide that similar structure as the real-time database does. And we do it through this type of URL called a GS URL, which is, you know, not... It's uh, you know, a traditional URL, you can't like hit it in your browser, do a get request and get back the image because it's uh, it goes through your security model. So and that's how we represent it. And so you use this GS URL to download the image using the client. And so we kind of had this idea, well, well, like, what if we just create a directive that gets this URL? And then from there, it downloads it from, you know, uh, Firebase storage and then just renders it just like a regular image. And what's great about that is, is that essentially you don't have to write any code to do it. And it still follows the security model in place, the same declarative security model for Firebase storage. Cool. Oh, and one of the things that we're also working on, we I demoed this a little bit at ng-conf and we're still working on trying to make this a bit more robust, is that we have what we call declarative querying within Angular Fire 2. And so Angular Fire 2 does observable, uh, synchronizes Firebase data uh, with observables. And so we synchronize data as two types of collections, objects, so just a regular JSON object, and then also lists, so an array. And when you want to query this array, we have all these query uh, methods within the real-time database, and your queries in the real-time database are real-time. So if something uh, bumps in and out of the window, the query actually adjusts in real-time. And Jeff actually was the one who had this idea. Um, I didn't like even understand it at first because it was so crazy. But essentially, you can specify an observable as a parameter of the query, and so you're pretty much giving an observable to an observable. But when this observable for the as the parameter to the query emits a new value, we just automatically rerun the query with the new result set. And so you can actually have a real-time query that reacts to real-time events. And so this real-time event could be something the user types something in uh, using Angular uh, Angular 2 forms, which is also observable-based. Um, it could be a property within your real-time database. Like anything that's an observable, you can just plug that in to this Firebase list query, and it just automatically keeps your everything in sync and queried, and it's uh, such a small amount of code for such a powerful feature. Yeah, the use cases where I think it really shines are lists, like a, an infinite scrolling list or a grid list where you're changing what is getting sorted or what is the sort order. 
you could represent the sort order or the, the field that's being sorted by with an observable. And whenever the user clicks to change that, it would just emit a new value and Firebase would automatically uh, change the query to get a list based on the new query. Uh, whereas before you would have to, you would have to destroy the old Firebase reference, create a new one, manually create the, the chain of operations to get the query and do a lot of that yourself. Now it's all automatic with observables and it cleans up after itself too. So this is also, I mean, the thing that struck me is a, a find near me as I move around. And we usually think of that in geo terms. So like, who are the 10 nearest friends of mine kind of thing? And as I move, uh, something has to feed that back in. But it actually, near me is a, it can be abstracted to say, uh, let's say I'm moving through some products. And there's some notion of what's near me as I'm scrolling through some products. What are the related things? What are the, and, and as my context changes in my application, I could imagine myself composing new queries that go off to Firebase that look for things that are relevant to, that are near to, in an abstract sense, what it is I'm looking at now. That would be kind of cool. Yeah, that's a perfect use case. You could have an observable of the category you're looking at or the exact product, and that could uh, be associated with other products in the database and automatically update some widget on the page. Sounds like a great demo. Another thing that we're actually going to be we're working on right now is uh, we actually just launched a Firebase YouTube channel. And with that, we are going to essentially every single week, we're going to be releasing videos that are all screencast based. And it's just going to be like a new t covering a new topic or building an app or do something every week. And right now I'm tasked with doing a lot of the web stuff. And so once we get these libraries updated, my whole goal is to do an entire like almost course on building building Angular Fire 2 apps. And so like setting up an Angular 2 app, integrating Angular Fire 2 in and like, you know, sh showing like the true power of using these two together. And then we're going to be doing that across like all platforms, all frameworks and stuff like that. And it's going to be every week is going to be like a new slew of videos. Holy smokes. I know how much work that is. <laughs> yeah, we have a really, really amazing studio team here at Google. So people, when I release, so this whole series is called Firecast. And whenever I release a new Firecast, someone's like, wow, this video is so amazing. I didn't know you were so great at like After Effects. I'm like, yeah, no, I, I don't do that. <laughs> I do all the coding and then someone else does their witchcraft and wizardry on it. Yeah, we'll definitely need to get a link to that in the show notes. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'll put that as one of my picks. Spoiler alert. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of picks, let's go ahead and head that direction. Uh, Lucas, do you have some picks for us? I do have some picks. So two years ago when I went to Google I.O., I was expecting them to just shower me with gifts of computers and cameras and phones and watches. And what they ended up giving me was a Google Cardboard which is basically a box that you put your phone in, and it's 3D. Surprisingly, I really, 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 really liked it. I thought it was really neat how just immersive it was. My kids loved it, um, you know, kind of viewfinder 2.0. Well, recently my friend showed me, uh, turned me on to this camera. It's called the Ricoh Theta S digital camera. They're about 350 bucks. It's about the size of a candy bar. And what you do is you just hold it over your head, you take the picture, and it takes a full 360 shot. So, like, for instance, we were at the beach, and he just held it over his head, boom, and you can actually then from there export it and kind of scroll around with it like you were actually there at the beach. So 350 bucks, I would have expected something like this to be much more expensive. It takes great photos. And then there's this kind of companion site that uh, my friend 
uh, Shane, his friend built called Kula.co. So it's K-U-U-L-A.co. And people have posted a bunch of their 360 like VR picks, and they're really, really cool, super addicting. And uh, so I'm really excited about you know VR 360, you know these panoramic picks, and I really think it's the future. All right, Ward, what are your picks? Quite coincidentally, I was looking at the New York Times virtual reality stuff, and I subscribed to it. And this Pluto thing came in, and I clicked on it like. You know, you shouldn't probably check the box that said <laughs> I agree to whatever the terms and conditions are without reading it. And I got a Google uh, Cardboard in the in the mail, too. And what a fun way to learn about Pluto or whatever it is to see it in there. So I'll, I'll give you a, I'll give you a props for that. Bring that up, Lucas. But the pick I was going to do uh, relates to my getting lost a lot. And I have something on my phone called Gaia GPS, which can download maps and keep track of where I am as I'm getting lost in the woods. And uh, it's a must-have phone app, and I recommend it to you. All right. I've got a few picks. The first one's a book. It's called Procrastinate on Purpose by Rory Vaden. I've been really enjoying it. He talks a lot about you only have so much time, and here's how people who are successful manage their time. And it goes into more than just, you know, put the big rocks in first. In fact, he talks more about prioritization than about, you know, getting the big chunks of things that are big chunks of things done. He talks about automation and systems and having people do it for you. And anyway, it's it's a pretty awesome book, so I'm going to pick that. I also just want to shout out here real quick. Uh, we're coming up on Newbie Remote Comp, so if you're a new programmer and you want advice from experienced folks, we've got a terrific lineup, and you can find that at NewbieRemoteConf.com. Jeff, what are your picks? My favorite thing, probably right now, now that the weather's getting nicer, are my Aftershocks on-head earphones. They're these Bluetooth earphones that they don't actually go around or on your ear. They just go on your temples and vibrate your bones so you hear sounds. So you can, I believe these are street legal on your bike or if you're running, they're nice on the street or working out, they're nice because they don't obstruct your ear and you can still hear things around you, but uh, also listen to music or talk on the phone. Um, they're pretty cool. Mishko actually showed these to me a while ago and I, I picked them up and they're uh, one of my favorite gadgets. I've got a pair of those. I'll plus one that. They are pretty <laughs> nice. You can hear what the kids are fighting over in the back seat while you're <laughs> listening to your podcast. Exactly. The kids don't know you're ignoring them. <laughs> All right. Uh, how about you, David? So I'm going to reiterate the Firebase YouTube channel. Uh, on there, we have a whole set of all the Firebase talks from IO. Like, uh, if you want to learn more at the Real-Time Database, I did a whole talk on that. And then for every single feature that Firebase now offers, we actually have these really crazy animated intros that uh, are all made by this uh, motion graphics designer that sort of do this nice one-minute explanation and this sort of like visual flair of how everything works. So if you're interested, I check that out. And then my second pick is in relation to that is that we at I.O. actually had uh, two talks on the Firebase track by the Angular team. So Rob Wormald and Alex Rickenbaugh did the, uh, who work with Jeff, did the Angular mobile talk and uh, showed a lot of the cool new things with Angular 2 and progressive web apps and some of the Firebase integrations. And then uh, Jules Kramer and Kara Erickson did an Angular 2 overview talk where they did, um, Kara did this amazing live coding where she shows how to build her puppy love app she did at ng-conf, but she integrated it with Angular Fire. So I recommend watching that. 
And the last thing I'm going to do in a non-technical realm, and I feel like I'm almost like a noob because I'm just now discovering this, but there's like a long ago, there was a book called Freakonomics. And then since then, there's like the podcast on it. And they had like a self-improvement month last month. And someone told me about it and I listened to it. And I'm now like hooked. The whole, the last month they had, it was like how to be more productive. And I thought it was going to be like, uh, like, oh, sure, you just tell me to do more things or something like that. But the actual advice and the actual like experts they spoke to in each podcast was just unreal. And the whole way it was set up was like super interesting. And I genuinely get sad every time one ends. So highly recommend you check out the Freakonomics podcast and especially the self-improvement month. Yeah, that's a good show. All right. Well, if people want to keep tabs on what's going on in Firebase land, where do they go? Go to the new website, firebase.google.com. We have a whole set of you know marketing pages to teach you everything it's about, but then we also have uh, tons of documentation. Uh, we have a whole docs team, so it's lots of stuff to learn. We have tons of API references, sample apps, you know, libraries. It's all there at firebase.google.com. And for the Angular Fire project, the GitHub project is the best place to look on github.com slash angular slash angular fire too. And we've got some good guys there. Thanks to David East. You're too kind. Mm -hmm. Awesome. We'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thank you both for coming and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 